What's up, everybody? My name is Athena, and you're here to listen to Vanished in the Valley. So how do you guys feel about the United States of America having a ministry of truth? I mean, one group within our government now has the power to determine what is disinformation and what is truth. And the U.S. is like the leader of disinformation. Let's go back to 2020, during the presidential election. That's when so-called former intelligence officials said in an open letter that the authentic emails regarding Joe Biden's activities in China and Ukraine were just Russian disinformation. They also had the whole fake news bullshit of Trump being in Russia's pockets. And big tech colluded with these psychopaths. And these are the people that get to determine what is truth and what is talked about on social media. I want to know how it even became a thing for the government to seize this power. I want to know how did they come up with what's true, what's disinformation. I mean, is it just basically we're following the narrative and it's all good and that's the truth? Anybody speaking out against the Democrat Party, that's misinformation. They're bad. Now, I know it's not us thinking that this is a good thing, but the problem is there are so many Americans, this younger generation, that think this is the way to go, that government should have this power. These naive motherfuckers need to pick up a history book and look at the littered bodies on the floor from governments and their ministries of truth. This is all bad and it's just all leading us off this cliff of no return. Okay, and we got to talk about this pug-faced bitch Nina Jankowitz for a second. I'm sorry, but she has that dead-behind-the-eye look that all of the other young global leaders and Klaus Schwab puppets have. It's like, do they suck all the life out of these people before they agree to sign up and toe the line for these psychopaths? Because they all have that same dead look behind the eye. No shit, you guys. Look up their pictures. They look I don't even know how to describe it. Fucking zombies. What happened to these people? What went wrong in their lives that they think it's okay to do this to their fellow man? Anyway, back to the pug face bitch. So CNN claimed that Jenkowitz was a quote unquote disinformation expert with experience working on Ukraine and Russia issues. Then Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas appeared on CNN to exalt her as a quote-unquote immensely qualified, a renowned expert in the field of disinformation. It's like, what the fuck does that even mean in fucking 2022? Anybody with more than three brain cells knows that the term disinformation and misinformation are being crazy applied to shit that it should not. So right now, we're going to go over the old school definitions of misinformation and disinformation. So back in 2019, the definition for misinformation was as follows. Misinformation is information that is false, but not created with the intention of causing harm. For example, someone posting an article containing a now out of date information, but not realizing it. Okay, now we go on to disinformation. 
They define disinformation as information that is false and deliberately created to harm a person, social group, organization, or country. An example, a competitor purposely posting false statistics about your organization with the intent to discredit you. Now we're going to even go a little further with the definition of malinformation. And that's defined as information that is based on reality used to inflict harm on a person, organization, or country. An example, someone using a picture of a dead child refugee with no context in an effort to ignite hatred of a particular ethnic group they are against. So guys, now let's go up and look up the dictionary.com definition for misinformation. They state, False or inaccurate information, especially that which is deliberately intended to deceive. You see how they did that? They're mixing up disinformation and misinformation as the same thing. I'm kind of feeling vibes here like the CDC's rewriting the vaccination definition. So they're just word salading bullshit to make things, I guess, a little bit more cloudy for those that don't bother doing their own research or looking beyond their clickbait headline. So this is what we're up against. I mean, come the fuck on. I'm trying not to be pessimistic here, but how the fuck are we going to beat these people? How are we going to come out with our minds and bodies intact on the other side? They're creating these food shortage situations. It's like every single week there is a new food processing plant that's burned to the ground. And have you guys heard about the baby food shortage? Check this shit out. Now, I'm getting this information from the British rag Daily Mail, but just because it's a British rag doesn't mean it doesn't have the truth. Their headline reads, Why is the biggest baby formula plant in the U.S. still shut down after three months? Abbott says plant is safe and was not responsible for bacteria that killed two kids, but the FDA refuses to reopen it as parents across the U.S. struggle to feed their babies. Now, Abbott Laboratories claiming its Michigan plant is not even responsible for the bacteria that killed these two infants. The baby formula manufacturer alleged an FDA investigation revealed infant formula produced at the Sturgis facility is not likely the source of infection. They also claimed the products from the facility did not even cause any bacterial outbreak. But somehow, the plant still remains closed despite these findings after they shut it down in February. Abbott is saying they are working closely with the FDA to restart the factory, but it hasn't happened. And parents are now struggling to get food for their babies. I know there are quote-unquote rations, limits at places like Walmart, Target, Walgreens, places where you can buy baby formula. They're limiting parents on what they can get. Now, I know some of you out there are like, why not just breastfeed? Some women can't produce breast milk and they can't produce enough of it. There's several different reasons why an infant would be on formula versus breast milk. So I'm just wondering, why is this shut down? This has been shut down for months. It's causing huge disruptions to the supply chain. I mean, that's probably their end goal here. So the FDA has not given a reopen date. They have to realize what's happening. They have to have heard about the headlines of baby formula rationing. But still, they're fucking dragging their feet and causing all these shortages. They're causing huge problems. But no one seems to give a shit about it. 
I know that new, uh, I guess, what do you call her? The White House reporter, the new lesbian chick, because that's how they described her. New black lesbian is the White House press correspondent. Let's fucking not even talk about her qualifications. But a reporter asked her, who's running point on the formula issue at the White House? You mentioned the White House is involved. Jean-Pierre responded, I mean, I, at the White House, I don't, I don't know. I can find out for you and get a person who's running point, but I don't have a person or a name. Apparently, this isn't a big fucking deal to these assholes in the White House. Let's just let fucking people's babies starve. That is how you start a food riot, is one infant dying of starvation. Motherfuckers' buildings are going to burn. That'll be one way to get the American public to wake up to the government fuckery happening here. So I'm just hoping this problem is uh, solved before we get to the food riots because of starving babies. But I don't know, maybe Americans won't care. We've got this whole fucking Roe versus Wade shit going on, and it seems like the left can't wait to kill babies, especially black babies, because Planned Parenthood kills way more black children than they do white or any other race. But nobody wants to talk about that. Black lives matter, just not black babies. So time to move on to Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself news. A man linking Bill Clinton to Jeffrey Epstein has been found dead just days after Jis Lane agreed to plea deal term to name names. Wow, that's not convenient. Clinton body count rises again. So Mark Middleton, who was a former special advisor to Bill Clinton during his presidency, who was credited with fostering the president's friendship with Jeffrey Epstein, has been found dead. He was 59 years old when he died and is the latest intimate associate of the Clintons and Epstein to, quote unquote, suddenly pass away. So Middleton was actually in charge of inviting Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself to the White House at least 17 times as a special advisor to the president. Hmm, wonder what happened on those trips. Middleton also traveled aboard Epstein's infamous private jet, a.k.a. the Lolita Express, and is commonly recognized with meeting the convicted pedophile and introducing him to Bill Clinton. They're saying the cause of death has not yet determined, and it appears that it will remain a mystery for the rest of everyone's life. So they're not going to do investigation, because of course they're not. Middleton owned an air conditioning company in Little Rock, Arkansas, a.k.a. Arkansas, which I'm actually going to in about a week or so. So actually, that leads me to another little random tidbit. We are not going to have an episode while I'm gone. So the 19th we'll have one, the 26th we will not have an episode. So, so sorry, guys. I'm going to Arkansas and Missouri, going to check out the forest there, maybe do some herping. So yeah, I just don't think I will get to recording, but who knows at this point. I, I don't know. But yeah, most likely we will not have an episode on the 26th. Anyway, back to the Pervert Express story. So like I was saying, he owned an air conditioning company in Little Rock for decades before being selected as a special advisor to Clinton and the campaign's financial director. And like I just said, the death is not being investigated, according to a spokesman for Little Rock Police Department. Nobody fucking wonder why this death is not being investigated. No one thinks this is suspicious at all. Of course not. I suspect we'll be hearing about some more deaths in the very near upcoming future here because, you know, Jis Lane starts naming names. 
And actually, I'm surprised Jizz Lane hasn't been taken out. So I don't know, maybe that would just seem a little bit too convenient that Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself and Jizz Lane Maxwell didn't kill herself. But we'll see. Anything's possible in the clown world. Now, while we're on the subject of the clown world, I can't fucking believe, well, actually, I can. I'm just pissed off that the first time I'm hearing about this next story was on FarmersForum.com and no other news channels. So check this out. Truckers were right. Freedom Convoy protest was illegal, judge says, and Ottawa is now being sued. So in Montreal, the Canadian government trampled on the fundamental human rights with its COVID restrictions, then overreached on dealing with the Freedom Convoy, and now has to answer to numerous lawsuits, including one by a former premier. Now, I don't know if you guys remember, but convoy leader Tamara Lick was charged March 25th with mischief. So her lawyer, Keith Wilson, is saying that these charges are not going to stick. She was basically just counseling truckers to move in order to comply with police demands, not to block emergency lanes, her lawyer said. Keith Wilson is also the lawyer for former Newfoundland Premier Brian Packford, who is suing the federal government for breaching the Charter of Rights by preventing unvaccinated people from leaving the country or getting on a bus, train, or ship. He says, obviously, we're going to be able to establish charter breaches adding that the government restricted mobility, security of persons, and freedom of conscience. Wilson said he would not be able to live with himself if he hadn't have helped the Freedom Convoy when he got the call for help from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms back on February 1st. He said, I've been so concerned about the direction of our country. I've been so fundamentally concerned about the trampling of civil liberties and the loss of rights and the overreaching to COVID. I've been so concerned about the future for my children. Deeply, deeply concerned. And I was inspired by what the truckers were doing. Wilson also clarified that the Freedom Convoy protest was not illegal at any point, even though fucking tro do is a tool, called it illegal and big media went along with it. Because of course they did. In fact, an Ontario Superior Court judge sided with the convoy. When an injunction against honking horns was declared, the court also stated that, quote, provided the terms of the order are complied with, the defendants and other persons remain at liberty to engage in a peaceful, lawful, and safe protest. But we all remember the videos, you guys. Reality on the ground did not meet up with these ideas. When Ottawa police often announced they had made a number of arrests, during the Freedom Convoy protests, they never mentioned that many of the incidents were called in by truckers after people got their tires or gas lines cut. Police also negotiated with truckers as to which streets they would be allowed to block during the protest. When things heated up, the police blocked off Laurier Avenue to prevent east-west traffic flow even though there was not one truck or protest vehicle on the street. The Attorney General's reason for freezing bank accounts was based on an affidavit by a police officer who based his testimony on what he read in the news. So not in reality, probably in fake news la la land. Wilson added that the courts don't rely on third-party hearsay. It's just ridiculous. We ran into this problem of circularity all the time. The media saying something, police then saying, 
Well, the news is saying it. Then the media is saying, well, the police said it. I mean, how fucking typical is that for the 2022 clown world? Fucking sums it up. So Wilson has already seen some early confirmation that truckers and their supporters have been slandered. Barry McKillop, a deputy director of FinTrack, the federal organization that goes after terrorism funds and criminal money laundering, told the Commons Finance Committee that there was not a shred of illegal activity associated with the trucker convoy. McKillop said there were people around the world who were fed up with COVID and they were upset and saw the demonstrations. I believe they just wanted to support the cause. It was their own money. It wasn't money that funded terrorism or was in any way money laundering. Wilson said that there was nothing to justify the Federal Emergencies Act. This is government writing a blank check over your rights and your life. This was a retaliatory measure by an authoritarian, petulant child prime minister lashing out. Now, you think something like this article would be shared broadly across all news stations, but it wasn't. I fucking had to read about this on FarmerForum.com, and it was a great article. So you guys go check that out, farmersforum.com. They have that whole article there. They have a whole bunch of great articles. So go check that out because who knows what other little gems are hiding on that website. But I'm just like, why did the Canadians, not all, but in general, support these measures that are just going to be taking their rights away in the near future? Fucking people cannot see three steps ahead the way these megalomaniacs act. You need to understand when they do shit like this, it's setting a precedent to grab more power in the future. So that's what's up, Freedom Convoy. I always supported you guys, and I 100% felt like your government was taking your rights and completely overreaching its powers by shutting you guys down, by freezing bank accounts of people that were supporting you. That's just like some straight-up CCP bullshit. So now we're going to move on to the lovely world of 4chan. Check this out, guys. I'm sure you've heard about children with unexplained hepatitis, children who are now dying of this hepatitis and having to get liver transplants. And just because you hear about these kids getting liver transplants, that doesn't mean they're all a-okay. Once you get a transplant, you are on so much medication for the rest of your life. You've got to take these anti-rejection drugs just to make sure your own body doesn't start attacking the transplanted liver. These kids have now been sentenced to life with a terrible, extremely serious medical condition. But let's get back to the 4chan angle. This is what an anonymous poster Posted recently, they wrote, I'm a recent PhD grad working at biotech firm in North Florida. I help develop and test adjuvants for pain management drugs that are delivered intravenously. I've been reading your guesses as to what's causing this novel childhood liver ailment in regards to the mRNA vaccines. Almost everyone working in my field already knows the cause of this. We can easily deduce it came from the barrage of very specific inquiries and tests the FDA has been sending us. Here's your plot twist. It's not the mRNA shots. 
It's being caused by a serious, unforeseen outcome in the development of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccination. You see, that vaccination uses an adenoviral vector platform based on the virus known as adenovirus 26. It's a genetically modified version of childhood gastrointestinal virus originally found in the feces of a sick nine-month-old child. Even unmodified, it's generally considered benign, and the J&J vaccine was supposed to contain a modified, entirely a replication and competent virus. Can't replicate, can't spread, can't mutate. Only it wasn't replicant and competent. In a small percent of the vaccinated patients, it replicated reached sufficient viral load to spread, and mutated in the population. The official inquiries I've seen lead me to believe that an unforeseen interaction with Gillette's HIV pre-exposure prophylactis prep allowed it to become replication competent. A mutation of AD26 from the J&J vaccine is what's showing up as adenovirus F-type 4-1 in the children with hepatitis. The gastrointestinal tracts of thousands of those who got the J&J vaccine likely were or are currently teeming with this stuff. Every time they have a bowel movement and flush, it's aerosolized all over the place. They use a public restroom and a parent and child use the same stall next and soon after you have a hepatitis case. And that's only considering the initial spread. Child-to-child spread follows, and you know how hard it is to get young kids to wash hands. So I'm sure this will just, like, be buried in the recesses of time. No one will fucking connect this stuff. Well, no one in the mainstream media, government, or anybody in charge. No one's going to connect this stuff and call out the J&J vaccine for what it is and what's happening to these kids. And like I said at the beginning of this segment, these kids, the ones that are getting the liver transplants... They're going to be completely affected for life. So now I'm going to give everybody a timeline of CIA atrocities. I found this information compiled very nicely on a website called stillnessinthestorm.com. A guy named Steve Kangas put this information together. CIA operatives follow the same recurring script. First, American business interests abroad are threatened by a popular or democratically elected leader. The people support their leader because he intends to conduct land reform, strengthen unions, redistribute wealth, nationalize foreign-owned industry, and regulate business to protect workers, consumers, and the environment. So, on behalf of the American business, and often with their help, the CIA mobilizes the opposition. First, it identifies right-wing groups within the country, usually military, and offers them a deal. We'll put you in power if you maintain a favorable business climate for us. The agency then hires, trains, and works with them to overthrow the existing government, usually a democracy. It uses every trick in the book, propaganda, stuffed ballot boxes, purchased elections, extortion, blackmail, sexual intrigue, false stories about opponents and the local media, infiltration and distribution of opposing political parties, Kidnapping, beating, torture, intimidation, economic sabotage, death squads, and even assassination. Those efforts culminate in a military coup, which installs a right-wing dictator. 
The CIA trains the dictator security apparatus to crack down on the traditional enemies of big business, using interrogation, torture, and murder. The victims are said to be communists, but most always are just peasants, liberals, moderates, labor union leaders, political opponents, and advocates of free speech and democracy. Widespread human rights abuses will follow. This scenario has been repeated so many times that the CIA actually teaches it in a special school, the notorious School of the Americas. It opened in Panama, but later moved to Fort Benning, Georgia. Critics have nicknamed it the School of Dictators and the School of Assassins. Here, the CIA trains Latin American military officers how to conduct coups, including the use of interrogation, torture, and murder. The Association for Responsible Dissent estimates that by 1987, 6 million people had died as a result of CIA covert operations. Former State Department official William Bloom correctly calls this the American Holocaust. The CIA justifies these actions as a part of its war against communism. But most coups do not involve a communist threat. Unlucky nations are targeted for a wide variety of reasons, not only threats to an American business interest abroad, but also liberal or even moderate social reforms, political instability, the unwillingness of a leader to carry out Washington's dictates, and declarations of neutrality in the Cold War. Indeed, nothing has infuriated the CIA directors quite like a nation's desire to stay out of the Cold War. The ironic thing about all of this intervention is that it frequently fails to achieve American objectives. Often the newly installed dictator grows comfortable with the security apparatus the CIA has built for him. He becomes an expert at running a police state, and because the dictator knows he cannot be overthrown, he becomes independent and defiant of Washington's will. The CIA then finds it cannot overthrow him because the police and military are under the dictator's control, afraid to cooperate with American spies for the fear of torture and execution. The only two options for the U.S. at this point are impotence or war. Examples of this boomerang effect include the Shah of Iran, General Noriega, and Saddam Hussein. The boomerang effect also explains why the CIA has proven highly successful at overthrowing democracies, but a wretched failure at overthrowing dictatorships. The following timeline should confirm that the CIA as we know it should be abolished and replaced by a true information gathering and analysis organization. The CIA cannot be reformed. It is institutionally and culturally corrupt. In the 1940s, we had the OSS, and they often combined powers with the Catholic Church and people we would now consider the quote-unquote elites, high society. Eventually, the OSS is abolished. The remaining American information agencies cease, to co cease covert actions and return to harmless information gathering and analysis. Now, while many other American agencies are hunting down Nazi war criminals for arrest, U.S. intelligence community is smuggling them into America unpunished under Operation Paperclip. They plan to use them against the Soviets. The most important of these is Reinhard Gellin, Hitler's master spy who built up an intelligence network in the Soviet Union. With full U.S. blessing, he creates the Gellin Organization, 
a band of refugee Nazi spies who reactivate their networks in Russia. These include SS intelligence officers Alfred Six and Emil Augsburg, who massacred Jews in the Holocaust. Klaus Barbie, also known as the Butcher of Lyon. Otto von Bolschwing, the Holocaust mastermind who worked with Eichmann. And SS Colonel Otto Skornzi, who was a personal friend of Hitler's. The Galen organization supplies the U.S. with its only intelligence on the Soviet Union for the next 10 years, serving as a bridge between the abolishment of the OSS and the creation of the CIA. However, much of the intelligence the former Nazis provide is totally bogus. Shocking, right? Gelin inflates the Soviet military capabilities at a time when Russia is still rebuilding its devastated society in order to inflate his own importance to the Americans, who otherwise may have, oh, I don't know, punished him for massacring Jews. In 1948, Gelin almost convinces the Americans that war is imminent and the West should make a preemptive strike. In the 50s, he produces a fictitious missile gap. To make matters worse, the Russians have thoroughly penetrated the Gelin organization with double agents, undermining the very American security that Gelin was supposed to protect. In 1947, President Truman signs the National Security Act of 1947, creating the CIA and National Security Council. The CIA is accountable to the president through the NSC. There is no democratic or congressional oversight. Its charter allows the CIA to perform such other functions and duties as the National Security Council may find from time to time direct. This loophole opens the door to covert action and dirty tricks. In 1948, the CIA recreates a covert action wing, innocuously called the Office of Policy Coordination, led by Wall Street lawyer Frank Weisner. According to its secret charter, its responsibilities include propaganda, economic warfare, preventative direct action, including sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition and evacuation procedures, subversion against hostile states, including assistance to underground resistance groups, and support of indigenous anti-communist elements in threatened countries of the free world. In Italy, the CIA corrupts its democratically elected leaders. The CIA buys votes, broadcasts propaganda, threatens to beat up opposition leaders, and infiltrates and disrupts their organizations. It works. The communists were defeated. In 1949, the CIA created Radio Free Europe. Over the next several decades, its broadcasts are so blatantly false that for a time it is considered illegal to publish transcripts of them in the United States. In the late 1940s, the CIA begins Operation Mockingbird, recruiting American news organizations and journalists to become spies and disseminators of propaganda. The effort is headed by Frank Wisner, Alan Dulles, Richard Helms, and Philip Graham. Graham is a publisher of the Washington Post, which becomes a major CIA player. Eventually, the CIA's media assets will include ABC, NBC, CBS, Time, Newsweek, the Associated Press, United Press International, Reuters, Hearst Newspapers, Scripps Howard, Copley News Service, and more. By the CIA's own admission, at least 25 organizations and 400 journalists will become CIA assets. In the 1950s, Operation MK Ultra, they were inspired by North Korea's brainwashing program. 
So the CIA started a little brainwashing program of their own. The most notorious part of this project involves giving LSD and other drugs to American subjects without their knowledge or against their will, causing several to commit suicide. However, the operation involves far more than this. Funded in part by the Rockefeller and Ford Foundations, research includes propaganda, brainwashing, public relations, advertising, hypnosis, and other forms of suggestion. The CIA in 1954 then overthrows the democratically elected Jacob Arbenz in Guatemala in a military coup. Arbenz has threatened to nationalize the Rockefeller-owned United Fruit Company, in which the CIA director Alan Dulles was also a stock owner. Arbenz is replaced with a series of right-wing dictators whose bloodthirsty policies will kill over 100,000 Guatemalans in the next 40 years. Between 1954 and 1958, CIA officer Edward Lansdale spends four years trying to overthrow the communist government of North Korea, using all the usual dirty tricks. The CIA also attempts to legitimize a tyrannical puppet regime in South Vietnam, headed by No Dien Diem. Those efforts failed to win the hearts and minds of the South Vietnamese because the M government is opposed to true democracy, land reform, and poverty reduction measures. The CIA's continuing failure results in escalating American intervention, culminating in the Vietnam War in 1957-1973. through 1973. The CIA carries out approximately one coup per year trying to nullify Laos' democratic elections. After the CIA's army suffers numerous defeats, the U.S. starts bombing and dropping more bombs on Laos than all U.S. bombings dropped in World War II combined. A quarter of all Laotians will eventually become refugees, many living in caves. In 1959, the U.S. military helps Papa Doc Duvier become a dictator in Haiti. He creates his own private police force called Tonton Makuts who terrorize the population with machetes. They will kill over 100,000 during the Duvier family reign. The U.S. does not protest their dismal human rights record. Now we've come to the Bay of Pigs. In 1961, the CIA sends 1,500 Cuban exiles to invade Castro's Cuba. But Operation Mongoose fails due to poor planning, security, and backing. In the Congo, the CIA assassinates the democratically elected Patrice Lumumba. However, public support for Lumumba's politics runs so high that the CIA cannot clearly install his opponents in power. Four years of political turmoil is to follow. In Indonesia in 1965, the CIA overthrows a democratically elected Sukarno with a military coup. The CIA had been trying to eliminate Sukarno since 1957, using everything from attempted assassination to sexual intrigue, for nothing more than his declaring neutrality in the Cold War. His successor, General Suharto, will massacre between 500,000 to 1 million civilians accused of being communist. The CIA supplies names of countless suspects. In 1966, we come to the Ramparts Affair. The radical magazine Ramparts begins a series of unprecedented anti-CIA articles. Among their scoops, the CIA has paid the University of Michigan $25 million to hire quote-unquote professors to train South Vietnamese students in covert police methods. MIT and other universities have received similar payments. 
Ramparts also reveals the National Students Association is a CIA front. Students are sometimes recruited through blackmail, bribery, including draft deferments. In 1968, Operation Chaos. The CIA has been illegally spying on American citizens since 1959, but with Operation Chaos, President Johnson dramatically boosts the effort. CIA agents go undercover as student radicals to spy on and disrupt campus organizations, protesting the Vietnam War. They are searching for Russian instigators, which they will never find. Chaos will eventually spy on 7,000 individuals and 1,000 organizations. In 1970, in Cambodia, the CIA overthrows Prince Sahunik, who is highly popular among the Cambodians for keeping them out of the Vietnam War. He is replaced by CIA puppet Lan Nol, who immediately throws Cambodian troops into battle. In 1971, in Haiti, Papa Doc Duvier dies, leaving his 19-year-old son, Baby Doc Duvier, as the dictator of Haiti. His son continues his bloody reign with full knowledge and training from the CIA. In 1972, the Watergate break-in occurs. President Nixon sends a team of burglars to wiretap the Democratic offices at Watergate. The team members have extensive CIA histories, including James McCord, E. Howard Hunt, and five of the Cuban burglars. They work for the Committee to Re-Elect the President, CREEP, which does dirty work like disrupting Democratic campaigns and laundering Nixon's illegal campaign contributions. Creep's activities are funded and organized by another CIA front, the Mulling Company. In 1973, the CIA's main collaborating newspaper in America, the Washington Post, reports Nixon's crimes long before any other newspaper takes up the subject. The two reporters, Woodward and Bernstein, make almost no mention of the CIA's many fingerprints all over the scandal. It's later revealed that Woodward was a naval intelligence briefer to the White House, and knows many important intelligence figures, including General Alexander Haig. His main source, quote-unquote Deep Throat, is probably one of those. President Nixon then fires CIA Director Richard Helms for failing to help cover up the Watergate scandal. Helms and Nixon have always disliked each other. The new CIA director is William Colby, who is relatively more open to CIA reform. In 1975, the CIA helps topple the democratically elected left-leaning government of Australian Prime Minister Edward Whitlam. The CIA does this by giving an ultimatum to its Governor General, John Kerr. Kerr, a longtime CIA collaborator, exercises his constitutional right to dissolve the Whitlam government. The Governor General is a largely ceremonial position appointed by the Queen. The Prime Minister is democratically elected. The use of this archaic and never-used law stuns the nation. In 1981, the Iran-Contras begin. The CIA began selling arms to Iran at high prices, using the profits to arm the Contras fighting the Sandista government in Nicaragua. President Reagan vows the Sandistas will be pressured until they say uncle. The CIA's Freedom Fighters Manual, dispersed to the Contras, included instructions on economic sabotage, propaganda, extortion, bribery, blackmail, interrogation, torture, murder, and political assassination. In 1984, the Bolin Amendment is made. The last of a series of Bolin Amendments is passed. These amendments have reduced CIA aid to the Contras. The last one cuts it off completely. 
However, CIA Director William Casey is already prepared to hand off the operation to Colonel Oliver North, who illegally continues supplying the Contras through the CIA's informal secret self-financing network. This includes humanitarian aid donated by Adolf Kors and William Simmons, and military aid funded by Iranian arms sales. Let's not forget that whole cocaine thing sold in black neighborhoods in the United States, but we'll move on. In 1986, the Iran-Contra scandal happens. Although the details have been long known, the Iran-Contra scandal finally captures the media's attention. Congress holds hearings and several key figures, like Oliver North, lie under oath to protect the intelligence community. CIA Director William Casey dies of brain cancer before Congress can question him. All reforms enacted by Congress after the scandal are purely cosmetic. In 1991, the Gulf War begins. The U.S. liberates Kuwait from Iraq. But Iraq's dictator Saddam Hussein is another creature of the CIA. With U.S. encouragement, Hussein invaded Iran in 1980. During this costly eight-year war, the CIA built up Hussein's forces with sophisticated arms, intelligence, training, and financial backing. This cemented Hussein's power at home, allowing him to crush the many internal rebellions that erupted from time to time, sometimes with poison gas. It also gave him all the military might he needed to conduct further adventurism, in Kuwait, for example. In 1992, we've got economic espionage going on. In the years following the end of the Cold War, the CIA is increasingly used for economic espionage. This involves stealing the technological secrets of competing foreign companies and giving them to an American company. Given the CIA's clear preference for dirty tricks over mere information gathering, the possibility of serious criminal behavior is very great indeed. Now you guys, this is just a very short list. I had to cut that down a lot just for time's sake. And we all know since these times, the CIA's fuckery is unbound. So in conclusion, all I have to say is abolish the CIA. Now I know this episode ran a little bit over, so if you guys stayed till the end, thank you very much. I appreciate everybody listening and downloading. That's what's up. So for now, be aware and don't forget your pepper spray. Ciao, ciao.